The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content, views, and opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect those of BMC or the town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Call us at 617-484-2443 or email us at belmontmedia.org. You know, one of these days I'm going to get through that disclaimer error-free, but uh, it is a rare thing for me to do that. I should have said email us at access at belmontmedia.org. That's the disclaimer. Anyway, hello again. Welcome to another edition of the TOST Podcast here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network, found online at belmontmedia.org slash podcast, and also at soundcloud.com by searching Belmont Media. You can listen to the Toddcast at your convenience by downloading the free SoundCloud app available on both iTunes and Google Play stores. I am Todd Bloniars from the award-winning Time Out for Sports Talk TV show, available on BMC channels 28 and 29, and also on demand at belmontmedia.org. Uh, glad to be back here behind the mic in Studio B at the Belmont Media Center, uh, kind of in summer Toddcast mode, so we're going to try to crank out a few of these this week uh, for your listening pleasure. And uh, on that uh, note, we are very glad uh, making uh, a return here on the Toddcast, Alex Putterman. This is his third appearance. You may recall that Alex uh, was a writer and editor for the website's Awful Announcing and The Comeback, and he's also written stories for The Atlantic, Vice Sports, and MLB.com. But now he has a new gig working in a newspaper that both he and I are very well familiar with, The Hartford Current. And uh, Alex, first of all, I want to welcome you back to the Toddcast. Thank you very much for joining us, and congratulations on your uh, first day on the job just completed. Uh, how's it uh, going? And actually, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, about what you're going to be doing at The Current? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, thanks for having me back. It is always fun. And uh, yeah, so I'm starting at The Current, which I have read my entire life. I grew up in the Hartford area, as you know, so this paper, like you said, it's, it's near to my heart. Uh, my role is going to be a whole bunch of everything. Uh, I'm, for starters, this fall I'm going to cover the UConn football team, the uh, unstoppable, imposing UConn football team, fresh off back-to-back three and nine seasons. <laughs> but then uh, right. after that, the rest of the year, I'm going to do kind of this uh, features-type role, kind of general assignment with a focus on sports and society-type stories, um, all kinds of stuff from um, sports betting, which is a hot topic now, to uh, concussions in football, to um, athlete protests, all kinds of stuff. Basically, whatever uh, whatever catches my eye. But uh, first up is uh, UConn football this fall. All right. Well, I know, uh, as we've spoken before, Alex, you are a huge baseball fan like myself, and hopefully you'll get a chance to cover a little bit of baseball, too, whether it's the Yard Goats or maybe you'll get to – uh, go to uh, Yankee Stadium or Fenway Park. Yeah, well, I hope so. Certainly, I'm sure I will be spending plenty of time at uh, Dunkin' Donuts Park, the uh, somewhat hilariously named ballpark of the Hartford Yard Goats. <laughs> That's right. And, and of course, uh, when I mentioned that you and I are both familiar with the current, not only did you, of course, grow up reading the paper, and I've also uh, read the paper in my youth, uh, but also uh, you interned at the uh, paper, uh, so you've already got a few bylines uh, uh in the current. Yep, I interned there in college, uh, actually mostly on the state desk writing about uh, non-sports stuff, but I also did some sports stuff. So yeah, I have been, uh, yeah, I I have been admiring the current from up close and from afar uh, for many years. Well, I for one am glad uh, that you're going to still be sticking to writing sports, so uh, we'll be able to kind of make you, uh, you know, you hopefully we'll have you back on uh, for more appearances in the future. Maybe we can, you can be our official UConn sports correspondent, and we can still talk about a lot of things, especially I, I figured this being uh, baseball's all-star break, and, and, and again, I know you and I are both such big fans of the sport, I uh, figured we'd, we'd talk baseball for this show. Does that work okay for you? Always. <laughs> Always happy to talk about baseball. I figured as much. And, uh, of course, I just came back from a little vacation myself. This year's Major League, uh, the 89th edition of the Major League Baseball All-Star Game is being played down at Nationals Park in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. And I was just down there 
to uh, catch the uh, Red Sox Nationals series, which uh, was a lot of fun. And I, I know, Alex, uh, when we've spoken in the past, uh, you've been to all of the major league ballparks, or almost all of them at this point. I guess some of the newer ones maybe you haven't been to yet, but you've been to a lot more than I have. And uh, what uh, you've been to Nationals Park before. Uh, what was your thought of the, that facility? Yeah, well, so I've been to Nationals Park a whole bunch because I uh, interned uh, for MLB.com covering the Nationals, so I was going to Nationals Park like every day during the summer of 2016. It is a a good park, a serviceable park. It gets the job done. I think they probably could have done a little bit more with it. Um, if you really squint and look over the left field uh, or third baseline stands, you can see the U.S. Capitol, which is kind of a cool effect, but really have to kind of squint. I think it would have been cool if they had built that into the skyline kind of or done something to kind of call out D.C. more. I think it in many ways is just kind of a generic park, which is too bad because they had a lot to work with. There's water right near there. Uh, so I would give uh, Nationals Park. So sometimes I'll say, oh, it's like an average park or a below average park even about any park, and people will be like, oh, really? You don't like it? And it's not really that because these days – way more than half of the parks are just really good places to watch a game. And so to say something is the 20th best park in baseball, even it's still, um, you know, a really, a really good park. You know, we're, the days where two-thirds of the parks were cookie-cutter, indoor, kind of drab places are over. Now even the not-as-spectacular parks, which is a category I would put Nationals Park in, even those are still really nice and really cool, really fun places to watch a game. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Alex. Uh, That's exactly my thoughts on the park, too. Uh, Very ordinary, average, uh, nothing spectacular. And, in fact, I even have a couple of pet peeves about the place uh, while I was there. Having been there for three straight games, I got a chance to really walk around a lot. Now, my first night I was sitting, well, actually all three nights I was sitting uh, and uh, day because I also did the uh, July 4th morning game. Uh, but uh, which was also cool because uh, Nationals Park, other than Fenway, the only other baseball park that hosts a, a morning game uh, on their schedule. So, uh, you know, of course, uh, the Red Sox have the Patriots Day Marathon Monday, uh, 11 o'clock start in April, uh, usually third Monday in April, and then, of course, Nationals with their uh, annual 4th of July game. But here was the, my biggest pet peeve. First night, I'm sitting in section, I think it was 224. Um, there's this little gap out in, like, along, as you're going down first base, you've got, you know, you've got all your upper deck of seats, and then there's, like, a gap of, a, like, about maybe a couple hundred feet where there's no seats, and then they have another section. So I'm sitting way in the back of the section, kind of down towards the right field corner, and my seat, as I was looking at home plate, I saw a batter. I got a hint of a catcher. As far as I could see, though, there was no home plate umpire in the game because I could not see it from my seat. Now, here's why, you know, it scores negative points with me. Any In my book, if Fenway Park and Wrigley Field have a, a obstructed view, I can understand that. Those ballparks are 100 years old. Anything that's been built in the last 15, 20 years that has an obstructed view seat to me, it is inexcusable. I, I could not believe that I could not see the home plate umpire, nor could I see anything behind home plate. So if there had been like a wild pitch or something going on back there, I couldn't see the uh, person singing the anthem before the game. It was, uh, was kind of crazy. Yeah, I didn't realize that they had those obstructed views. I'm totally with you. I was just about to say uh, last week, right before I left Boston, I went to a Red Sox game and got the cheapest possible tickets, which of course at Fenway means you're kind of low to the field in the grandstand, but you're behind a pole. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you can't complain, A, because they were the cheapest tickets, and B, because like you said, it's, you know, more than 100 years old. You know, that's how it goes. I am shocked and, yeah, disappointed that there are any obstructed view seats at modern ballparks because, yeah, there's no reason. Well, right, because the way they, they're built, they don't have those poles anymore holding up the upper decks. It's all built uh, so that the upper deck and the lower deck, there are no poles or anything to look through. So, yeah, it, it's terribly annoying. And here's another thing. I, I think what you mentioned about kind of a wasted opportunity with the skyline or the lack thereof, and I'll give you that, not to mention right now they've got a bunch of construction going on, and I think in a couple of years all you're going to see uh, from behind home plate looking out towards the outfield are a bunch of uh, new apartment buildings. But aside from that, Talk about unutilized space inside the ballpark. 
here's the thing. You've got this wonderful concourse in the outfield, and you've got all these uh, concession stands and everything. And, you know, if you're sitting in the upper deck and you go to the concession stand down below, because it's like, say, maybe a Shake Shack or some kind of a place that you're not going to find maybe near your seat. So you're kind of wandering. You're holding, like, you know, a, a, you know, a drink and some food, and you want to be able to, like, maybe kind of park yourself for a moment, uh, perhaps in the concourse area, and maybe watch a couple innings and then go back to your seat. And they have these spaces behind the, the bleachers and the concourse, but it's just a space to stand. Now, my question would be, any kind of space like that in a ballpark, these modern parks, there should be like little tables or like, you know, kind of like the bar height tables, just even a small little shelf where you can put down your food and drink and you maybe you can actually, you know, you can eat and watch the game and not have to try to do some kind of crazy balancing act. And to me, that's wasted space uh, if you're the Nationals, the way you designed the ballpark, because there's this huge space and you see that people want to congregate there and watch the game going on. But, you know, they're also holding food and drink and, you know, they can't really do everything at the same time time so you know begrudgingly they're they have to go back to their seats if they want to be able to you know enjoy the stuff they just purchased yeah that's interesting um i had never really thought about that but yeah i think uh it's smart to look at the parks through the perspective of really the fan experience like that because i tend to view them almost exclusively as sitting in my seat how do i like what i see does it look nice but uh really for 95% 95% of people, it's far more important whether it's convenient and easy and fun um, than it is, you know, if there's a nice skyline, which I think is what a lot of people um, judge parks on. Yeah, and then the other thing is it was easy for me to make this comparison or the lack, you know, of this uh, these kinds of amenities at Nationals Park because – um, the day before, I had been driving down and I stopped at Citizens Bank Ballpark in Philadelphia, where I'd actually been a couple of times before, but I like the park so much, you know, and it's so easy to get to and get in and off the highway and everything. I decided, oh, I'll catch a, I'll catch a Phillies game on my way down to D.C. And uh, they've got it figured out. I mean, they've got all those little, you know, if you walk around, first of all, you know, all these new modern parks, the great thing is you can walk around in the concourse and everything and the, everything is open, whereas you can like turn towards the field and you can actually see the game going on without having to go all the way to your seat. And again, you know, they had the little tray tables or, you know, like, the you know, you know what I'm talking about, like, you know, kind of little bar tray tables where just a little shelf or something. And they had that going all the way around. So in the early part of the game, before the game had even started, I'm striking up conversations with various fans and things. And I had had, you know, I had food and drink in my hand. I was able to put it down and I could talk and, you know, and uh, converse and, and all that. And you get to, I mean, again, they have it figured out. And I know that ballpark wasn't built, uh, I mean, might have been built a couple of years before Nationals Park, but they both pretty much went up around the same time and uh you know again they they knew they got it right in philly and then just you know a few miles down the road they could not so yeah i think like what you said alex it's kind of a wasted opportunity unfortunately uh but it is hosting this year's all-star game so i don't know maybe there's going to be a lot of fans coming in from all different parts of the country um you know going to see that game in that ballpark and maybe they're going to come away with the same takes that uh that you and i did yeah, yeah, I don't think, I've never met anybody who was wowed by Nationals Park, but I do think it, it gets the job done. It is not a dump. It's not ugly. Right. It, um, it's not the most inconvenient place, unless, I guess, you sit in those seats that you sat in, then it sounds... <laughs> well, that was only the first game. Second second and third games, I was out, again, in the upper deck, but I was in right field. And actually, while I was there, of course, if you remember, Fourth of July week, we went through that crazy heat wave. And, and down in D.C., uh, the heat index was well into the, the triple digits. And the one good thing about sitting in the upper deck uh, for the two night games and even for the, uh, for the day game is that there was a little bit of a breeze up there at that level, which kind kind of helped make it a little bit more bearable uh, trying to deal with the heat. And then even on the uh, the 4th of July game, one of the nice things that turned out, my seats were kind of slightly undercover because of the high angle of the sun. It wasn't until like the 7th inning when the sun actually hit my seat. And at that point, I just got up and decided I would just wander around the park for the rest of the game and leave my seat after I'd already seen plenty uh, from there. And actually, uh, so let's kind of turn this now as we talk about the, uh, uh, I guess we'll talk about the All-Star. Well, before we talk about the All-Star game, let's talk about the first half of the baseball season and uh, what has transpired. And, of course, uh, I was uh, reading your article in The Athletic. By the way, let me uh, kind of backtracking a little bit here. You talked about what you're going to be doing for The Current. Are you still going to be occasionally writing anything for The Athletic or MLB? Are you still doing any of that freelance stuff, or is it going to be current uh, full-time? Uh, it's going to be current full-time. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe at some point in the future, but no, for now, my, my uh, attention is fully on the current, um, which, you know, I'm... I understand. Out. It's gonna, I'll, I'll miss writing about baseball day-to-day a little bit, but, um, you know, the, the pros definitely, definitely uh, outweigh the cons on that. I understand, and you know what, uh, I, uh, on, on the note of your, uh, your freelance writing, uh, you're, well, if you're not going to be doing it for a while, at least your, uh, your last article for The Athletic, uh, when you were talking about the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry back in full force, uh, was a very good read. Uh, slightly inaccurate, you bring up the uh, July 1st, 2004 game between the Red Sox and Yankees. I would argue uh, that uh, July 24th of 2004 was a, a much more exciting, dramatic game. Uh, of course, you uh, are writing that from your Yankee fan perspective. Well, of course, I uh, was looking at it. You you recall the game on July 1st, 2004 at the old Yankee Stadium with, uh, you know, the you know Alex Rodriguez turning the double play. John Flaherty got the big walk-off hit and then the dive, the legendary play where Derek Jeter dove like 10 rows deep into the stands uh, to uh, to catch a ball and, uh, you know, actually caught it in fair territory and then ran and kind of, uh, I, I think he added some theatrics, but that's another story. I think uh, <laughs> my Yankee fan bias was showing a little bit and I think your Red Sox fan bias is showing a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Well, you know, in that game, the game you brought up on July 1st, 2004, Nomar Garcia-Pera was still a member of the Red Sox, and he was actually in the dugout not playing that day. And I remember watching the TV coverage, and they kept showing that Jeter play, and then they kept cutting to Nomar, who was on the bench, and he was kind of not happy. And there was, and then, of course, a couple weeks later, he got traded. And uh, then, you know, by the time that uh, 23 days later, when the two teams again played at Fenway Park, uh, was a it was a different game. Uh, Nomar was gone, and uh, you know that was a game that got delayed by three hours, and it had a late start. And then uh, Red Sox came from behind in the bottom of the ninth off Mariano Rivera, Bill Miller uh, hitting a, a two-run walk-off homer uh, to win it. So I mean, that's uh, if we're talking about July games from 2004, that's the one I remember. But yes, we both we both have our biases, and that's fine. But you know, and that's what it kind of makes it all the the fun this year because uh, uh, what a race we're going to have here between uh, the Red Sox and Yankees. As it stands right now, Boston uh, at the All-Star break, uh, 68 and 30. First time they've been 38 games over 500. You got to go back to 1949. That's by the way, that's the Ted Williams era for those of you uh, uh, keeping score of that at home. And the 68 wins certainly the most of any team um, in uh, MLB history uh, to get that many wins by the All-Star break, which I know started a little later this year. The Yankees uh, just four and a half behind, although that four and a half game lead for the Sox, the biggest lead that they have had in the division this year, still. Uh, head-to-head Yankees lead in the series five to four and then the teams still have 10 more games uh, going against each other in the in the um, what's left of the second half and that includes a, a big four game series at Fenway starting on August the 2nd so um, Alex your, your thoughts about uh, both these teams uh, the AL East race uh, just uh, you know and the the excitement that's uh, been uh, taking place with both these teams playing so well this year oh it's great um, it's really great I hope that the Yankees tighten it up that it gets back to being that neck and neck that it was um, for most of the season, not only just because I would prefer the Yankees win, but just because it's more fun when um, those series come when the teams are close or when the the lead is in the balance. You know, I think there's another series coming up in a few weeks. I don't know the schedule in front you know, of me. Well, actually, that was the one I was just mentioning, uh, starting August 2nd, a four-game series at Fenway, and then they'll play six games against each other uh, head-to-head over the last two weeks of the season. Yes, and uh, it would just, those games are always more fun if it's a one-game lead for somebody or if it's tied, or even if it's two and it feels like, you know, if they sweep, they could take the lead, that kind of thing, as opposed to the four-and-a-half. But even if the Red Sox run away with it a little bit, and I don't necessarily expect that they will, but even if they do, uh, there's still a high amount of drama uh, in a potential playoff matchup because that is definitely on the table if the Red Sox maintain the best record in the AL, which is maybe a toss-up because the Astros are extremely good. But if the Red Sox do, then, you know, they would be in line to face the Yankees in the division series if the Yankees could win the wildcard game. Right. I mean, that's uh, that could be the potential difference, uh, particularly, I think, the way uh, everything is formatted now in each league. Uh, there's a pretty good chance that, 
these two teams would actually meet not in the ALCS again, but in the ALDS. And so instead of a best of seven series, it would be a best of five, which might even make it all the more exciting because it's going to be a shorter series. Uh, you know, may, I, I know if you're a, a real Red Sox Yankee fan and you remember 2003 and 2004 and those seven game grinds each year in the in the league championship series, this might feel like a little bit of a, a come down from that. But I don't know. I would say maybe a shorter series could also make it a little more uh, exciting in that front. And, and I'm kind of with you too, Alex. I, I think, you know, Yankees are going to, you know, get back, you know, a four and a half game lead this time of year, first of all, is not insurmountable. And I, I do think the Yankees are going to get a little bit closer. Uh, I can see those, you know, those final six meetings they'll have over the last two weeks are probably going to end up determining uh, who wins the division and perhaps who gets the best record and the top seed in the American League. Although, like you said, Houston will have a say in it. And then also versus who's going to have to play that one game playoff. Yeah. And, uh, I would take a five-game series, absolutely. Somehow it's been 15, no, 14 years since the two teams played in the playoffs, which just seems remarkable. Um, and so, you know, a five-game series beats a no-game series, which is what we've had for somehow 14 years. I think right. it would be just, like, electric. And I'm sure much of the country would be kind of sick of it and wouldn't want to see the Yankees and Red Sox on Sports Center every day and all that because, you know, a lot of the country feels that way, that the Yankees and Red Sox get too much attention, but for people in our part of the country, I think it would just be incredible. Well, and like you said, Alex, it's been, you know, it's been 14 years, so it's not like, you know, every year they're meeting in the playoffs. So, you know, if the the rest of the country's a little sick of it, uh, you know, first of all, I don't necessarily buy that. I, I think there's been a little bit of a break here, and, you know, it's almost like a kind of a new generation now of uh, Red Sox and Yankees fans can kind of get caught up in it, and even maybe other baseball fans can that can just appreciate what a good rivalry is. You know, you've got your, you know, your Dodgers and Giants, and, you know, uh, the, the uh, you know, even the A and Giants, maybe Bay Area to a degree, and, you know, Yankees, Mets, and, yeah, I mean, there you go. Yeah, Cubs, Car- Cubs, Cardinals, thank you. I left out one of the big ones there. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, well, okay, let's talk to you as a Yankee fan. What do you think's been the key uh, to the Yankees' success here in the first half, and uh, what do you think they're going to have to try to do uh, uh, to get better, uh, you know, for the second half? Well, the lineup has been every bit as good as, people expected coming into the season, which is really saying something. Um, there's a good chance that they're going to break the all-time single-season record for most home runs. Um, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to Giancarlo Stanton's slow start, but now you look up and his numbers are not far off from what they were at this time last year when he wound up winning NL MVP. He has really uh, gotten hot, maybe not scorching hot like we saw uh, last summer, but he's right where you want him to be. Aaron Judge is showing that last year was not a fluke. Labor Torres and Miguel Andujar have been great. There's really not, when everybody is healthy at least, there's really not a weakness in the lineup. And there's certainly not a weakness in the Red Sox lineup either. But the Yankees lineup has really been just what you want. And then the bullpen has been unreal when you look at those numbers. You know about Chapman, but Tansis is back. Uh, Adam Warren has been unhittable. Jonathan Holder, who used to be kind of unreliable, is now, you know, nobody can score off of him. Uh, David Robertson is still David Robertson. Uh, Chad Green, I almost forgot, is probably one of the best relievers in baseball. So the starting lineup and the relief pitching is about as good as you're going to find. The starting pitching certainly needs some work behind Luis Severino, who has been excellent. But uh, everybody else, NC Sabathia has been good, despite being something like 50 years old. <laughs> uh, no, I love CC Sabathia. But, uh, you should, because he still also pitches pretty well against the Red Sox, too. Yes, yes, yes. Sonny Gray has not been good. Uh, Tanaka hadn't been good, and then he got hurt. He just came back off the disabled list. Uh, the fifth starter spot is just kind of a total mess. They've thrown out a couple rookies, Domingo Herman, uh, Jonathan Loisaga, who they've and how rookies are usually kind of, you know, you get some good days and some bad days. So the Yankees really could use another starting pitcher. Um, you can debate whether they need another frontline starting pitcher or whether they just need somebody to fill that fifth spot and maybe start game four of a playoff series. But just in terms of keeping pace with the Red Sox, I think it would help if they weren't throwing out some pretty shaky pitchers two or three out of every five days. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, if Sonny Gray uh, kept his starts limited to road games, he might be all right. I know I was hearing that uh, his uh, home ERA is, I guess, the worst in uh, Yankee history, which is saying a lot, uh, you know, for uh, by a starting pitcher anyway. So there's that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, for me... Uh, Alex, I think some of the some of the most pleasant surprises certainly what they've been able to get out of uh, Gleyber Torres and uh, you know Andahar at third base and and Greg Bird. I, I think here's someone who uh, has been uh, really hit hard by the injury bug the last couple of years. But boy, if he can stay healthy for an extended stretch, I think uh, all of uh, uh, you know all Red Sox, Yankees fans, and, and baseball are going to get to see what kind of a uh, you know power skill set he has. And uh, you know again, getting to bat down in the lower part of the order could really make him a, a very uh, underrated and uh, dangerous weapon. Yeah, because he had not been hitting very well at all, and uh, I know some Yankee fans were getting ready to kind of give up on him, and then he kind of caught fire a little bit heading into the All-Star break. So hopefully from the Yankees' perspective, that is the Greg Bird who returns from the All-Star break as well, because, yeah, that is kind of the one spot in the order where um, you don't quite know what you're going to get for the one position on the field everywhere else. I mean, I didn't even mention Brett Gardner is having a really nice year. Aaron Hicks, uh, who takes some undeserved heat from Yankee fans sometimes, is having a really nice year. It's really relentless. And if Bird can hit like he did last postseason as opposed to how he did for the first three months of this season, then just another another one. It's hard to believe. Um, even the Red Sox, who have two or three like really top-notch A-plus MVP candidate-type hitters, when you get toward the bottom, there are some weaknesses, and that's where the Yankees potentially, when things click, uh, have the Red Sox beat, I think, in terms of the depth of the lineup. You might be right. I do th- I do see a little bit more depth in, in the Yankees' uh, lineup as far as 1 to n- through 9 goes. And with regards to Aaron Hicks, yeah, I can't believe he's getting grief because I think all you need to do is tell Yankee fans, well, the alternative, if you're really you know, disgruntled with uh, Hicks playing center field, they can always get go back to Jacoby Ellsbury. And I d- think that should get Yankee fans to immediately say, oh, yes, please, please, let's keep Aaron Hicks in there. Because, uh, uh, you know, he's not a, he's not a bad uh, player. He's just one of those kind of, you know, I think if, if, if someone like Aaron Hicks was playing in Boston, you'd probably look at him as like a dirt dog type or just, you know, he's one of these kind of guys that you just, a glue guy, someone you need. Uh, you know, for the Red Sox, it's guys like Brock Holt who bring that to you, Eduardo Nunez, a former Yankee. Um, really quick, though, uh, you know, getting back to the Yankees for a second here with you, Alex. Uh, again, we're talking to uh, Alex Putterman, new of the Hartford Current, and uh, Hartford, of course, being the intersection of Red Sox and Yankees fans. Alex is on the uh, Yankee side of things. Uh, not sure why, but no. <laughs> but uh, here's uh, let's talk about. You, you meant uh, you're saying what the Yankees probably could use a starting pitcher, perhaps a frontline starting pitcher. And I think the one edge the Yankees have is they have a deep enough farm system and they've got enough resources that they can put together a strong package deal to acquire a frontline starter like maybe a Cole Hamels or a J.A. Happ without disrupting anything on the current Major League roster. What do you uh, expect or think that the Yankees might be doing as we approach the July 31st trade deadline? Yeah, I think those are realistic names, especially Jay Happ. The word is that the Yankees are hesitant to give up their really top young guys, um, certainly Torres and Duhar, but also Frazier and Frazier and um, Justice Sheffield. Are, are those some of the names that, like Torres and Andujar are brought up uh, as part of uh, the trade rumored names in the deal? Only if they were, well, Torres isn't going anywhere. Andujar sometimes gets thrown into talks for a deal for uh, Jacob deGrom or a Manny Machado. Well, probably not Manny Machado because it's only half a season. But if the Yankees were to really go all out and go after Jacob deGrom or maybe Noah Syndergaard, they might have to part with one of these top guys who they are not. They would prefer to hold on to. If they were going after the lower tier, the J. Happ tier, uh, they would, you know, probably avoid giving up just about everybody who, you know, the average fan has heard of. And it would be, you know, they'd be trading out of the depth of their farm system as opposed to trading trading top guys. So that seems like the more likely situation for me. Um, I mentioned Justice Sheffield, who's a top prospect we've been hearing about for a little bit, who's a pitcher. I think it's likely that at some point this season we see him in the majors and see what he can do, and maybe they don't need to trade for a top-line starter because every once in a while you see those top rookies who come up and they make a difference right away. Uh, You think about uh, David Price with Tampa way back or uh, even 
further back, Francisco Rodriguez. Um, mm. There are more recent examples that are escaping me now, but maybe that's the infusion that they need. But I do think that the Yankees wind up getting a J-Hap type um, or maybe Cole Hamels. I'm kind of a Cole Hamels skeptic, to be honest with you. But uh, somebody in that tier who uh, can isn't going to change the team but can take the ball every fifth day and, and be competent and maybe start a playoff game. Yeah, I know Hamels is struggling right now, um, but he, you know, he's had a solid major league career, uh, most of it uh, with the uh, Phillies and more recently now with the Rangers where he struggled. Of course, the whole Rangers team has struggled, but he is a solid lefty who, like you say, will take the ball every five days. He's a lefty pitcher in Yankee Stadium. That should be a plus right there. I just think he'd be kind of a guy. I also think he would pitch a lot better once he's on a, a more competitive team. So uh, that might be the kind of deal the Yankees might want to uh, aim for. And again, I don't know how much the Rangers would be asking for Hamels because I'm not really even aware of his uh, contract status. Is he a free agent at the end of this year? Do you happen to know? Or um, I'm right in front of a computer, so I'll check really quick. Okay. I believe he's a free agent after this year, but I, I could be wrong about that. Well, um, while you're checking that... He has uh, a year and a half left. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, it uh, seems like that would be a good... Uh, acquisition uh, from the Yankees' perspective. Uh, Since he's 34 and his numbers have been slipping for a little while, and there's reason to believe when you look at the advanced stats that even his ERA right now overstates his performance a little bit. It just becomes a question of, is that the type of guy who you want for another year and a half? Because he is, he is getting up there. He is, but again, you know, again, he's pitching for a bad team. He's also pitching in a park where I know the ball jumps off the bat, especially during the the hot the humidity during, uh, you know, sec, uh, Texas summers. So it, you're right. I mean, maybe he gets rejuvenated with a trade to a contender. Uh, I think he might. I mean, that's just, but you're right. I mean, some of the peripherals and everything is the numbers, uh, you know, kind of trending in the in the downward direction. But again, this is the edge that the Yankees would have is they can go out and perhaps get a Hamels or a Jay Happ, or maybe if the Mets ever wanted to trade Jacob Degrom to their crosstown rival. Yes, I mean, again, they can, they have the, the the prospects and the talent to go out and the depth in the organization to make a deal like that. Whereas the Boston Red Sox, who just suffered uh, an injury to their starting rotation, Eduardo Rodriguez looks like he's going to be uh, you know out for an indefinite period after uh, uh, I guess uh, pulling some ligaments in his ankle in a collision uh this past weekend they're you know again the Red Sox are kind of in a spot where they're going to probably have to try to find someone off the scrap heap as I was hearing uh earlier this afternoon on the radio they're gonna have to find this year's version of Doug Fister who was the guy they they picked up last year and I know Fister right now is uh speaking of pitchers struggling in the Texas heat uh that would be uh one Doug Fister not to mention I think he's also on the DL right at the moment but you know, the Red Sox are going to have to, and they don't have anyone in AAA either that they can pull up, unlike what uh, you had mentioned with the Yankees, Alex. So that's, you know, that you know, not only do the Red Sox maybe have not a lot of depth in their overall lineup, they're very top-heavy. they got some great offense at the top of the lineup with Betts and Bogarts and Benintendi and J.D. Martinez for sure, and, you know, even all-star Mitch Moreland, who's uh, had a, a really solid first half for him. But, yeah, it will be what they can get out of the bottom half of that order and then also, uh, you know, whether – you know, they're pitching their starting rotation, which you going into the season, they had the edge over the Yankees in that area. If, uh, but if Rodriguez is out for an, a really long period here, that's, uh, you know, I think things are going to be equalized, especially if the Yankees end up making a, a trade deadline acquisition. Yeah, and I think you're smart to look at it that way because I know that some people would say, well, everything's going right for the Red Sox. They're playing great. They're out slugging everyone. You know, they don't need to do anything. But I think you're totally right that the back of the rotation is a need and they should do what they can to address it because you know Mookie Betts isn't going to hit 365 or whatever it is uh, forever uh, believe it or not JD Martinez isn't going to hit three home runs a week forever you know the bats are going to cool down Mitch Moreland's all-star appearance you know good for him uh, impressive he deserved it but you don't know how long that's going to last so I, I agree with you that they should do what they can even if they can't do quite as much as the Yankees can to shore up the the back at, back end of their rotation because that's the type of flaw that can that can matter. But uh, in the 
playoffs. No, you're right. But that's also not to take away. I mean, unlike some of the, you know, some of the sports radio hosts that I, you know, unfortunately have to be subjected to listening to here. I mean, they're they're just uh, telling you what's the point they're going to lose in the playoffs anyway. And I, I'm certainly not at that point. I mean, yes, I, I have some guarded, uh, you know, it, it's guarded optimism with the Red Sox. And certainly I do have some concerns. But, hey, so far it's it's been a great first half. And, you know, J.D. Martinez has had a great impact on that lineup. And, you know, Betts is playing well. And, you know, Bogarts, since he came back from the injury, has also been performing well. Yeah, so they're, you know, they're getting a lot of, uh, you know, good offensive sources. I mean, they've got four starting pitchers with 10 wins. Unfortunately, now one of them is on the DL. But, uh, you know, if they can piece this together, and I still think they need to go out and get a another reliever. And, in fact, before uh, Erod went down with the injury, uh, I was saying that I think the Red Sox' top need would be to find a good relief pitcher, which you can actually get you know, before the trade deadline without having to spend a whole lot in terms of, uh, you know, t- you know, prospect capital, so to speak. So I think there's, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see which way the Red Sox uh, go here at the trade deadline if they try to pick up a reliever and maybe, you know, try to find some, you know, starter off the, the junk heap or whatever, someone who just like a serviceable, whether it's a Doug Fister or maybe going back to 2013, a Jake Peavy type, kind of a back-end rotation, a veteran presence who can kind of just help stabilize things uh, you know for the uh, for the remainder of the regular season can you explain to me how you mentioned those uh, sports radio people how can anyone be fatalistic about a franchise that has won three world series in the last 14 years yeah, you know what? I, I don't understand it either, Alex, but I, I just think it's this uh, – I, I think they're trying to find that, that inner – they're trying to go back to pre-2004 and, and find that that just deep-rooted pessimism that is somehow still embedded uh, in, in the, the Red Sox fans' DNA. They're, like, trying to burrow down through layers of cells to kind of to, to hit it. And it's uh, – you know, some of, some of the folks do it well, and they get these crazies to call the radio and, you know, call in and just – just go, oh, I, you know, I can't believe it, and yeah, what's the point? And you know, yeah, they're they're great right now, but wait till October; they haven't proven anything. And yeah, all those things are true. Uh, yeah, it's been a whopping yeah five years. Oh, I know, right? Yeah, exactly. The big five-year drought here without a championship. Yes, you know, it did happen. You were only five years younger, which means you were probably close to the same age you are now. Not necessarily a whole lot's happened, you know, in your lives in, in the last five years. That's uh, you know that uh, earth-shattering necessarily, but you know, I, yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I just just, I don't get it either. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, as I say, I look at the first half, and there's a lot of great historical numbers there. Do you know? Does it matter if they don't win the whole thing? I guess maybe not. But still, you know, as a baseball fan, and you and I are both baseball fans, we like to, you know, appreciate what we have. It's been fun so far watching uh, this team. I mean, the, the last week, you know, after I came home from my uh, my my DC trip, you know, I'm watching the Red Sox. You know that I got to watch that 13 pitch at bat with Mookie Betts uh, against the Blue Jays, and what a great it bad. It went on for like seven minutes, and he's fouling off pitches. And then you know Dennis Eckersley, uh, you know, uh, in the Nesson broadcast booth, saying, "Yeah, come on, if he can, if he can knock one out here, it'll be party time for everyone." And then on the thirteenth pitch, he just kind of gulped that one over the monster seats, and you know he just uh, Eckersley's just going, "Yeah, time to party, but you know, and it's, it's just great. I mean, it's just one of those moments. And you know, even though, and, and I'm sure you're the same way, Alex. You're not watching every inning of every game anymore because it just doesn't maybe hold your attention the same way, but you know, once in a while you watch and you, you see one of those great at bats or something that goes on for like, you know, double digit pitches and, you know, it ends in something dramatic like that. And you just kind of go, you know, wow, it's uh, you know, it makes you remember how, why you love the game so much. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When a team is going well like that and just a few days later, uh, Bogarts hit the walk-off grand slam. Right. Yeah. You, it, it, nothing really beats it. When you get that feeling, and I guess not everyone in Boston has that feeling, but this team is going to figure out a way to win this game. It's 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 really it's really pretty thrilling. And I know that the uh, for all the talk about people in Boston aren't excited about the Red Sox, uh, I saw Chad Finn from the Globe has been tweeting that uh, ratings on Nesson have been have been up the last couple weeks. They're drawing awesome numbers. That Mookie Betts game that you mentioned, uh, I think, was the most watched game of the season. So it seems that fans are are tuning in. They they care, and they should. It's not every year that your team is on a, what, 110-win pace. 
You're right. And uh, Alex, you did such a great job uh, there, a little bit of PR for the Toddcast because uh, you brought up Chad Finn and we're going to be hoping to touch base with uh, Chad uh, during our uh, Toddcast this coming week. We mentioned we're kind of doing a flurry of these and uh, we're going to have Chad on one of our other Toddcasts. Uh, He'll be uh, coming back on again and uh, we'll be talking uh, certainly a lot of Red Sox with him and probably some sports media too. So thank you for the plug there. Great way to (laughs) plug an upcoming Toddcast. But uh, in the meantime, I just wanted to uh, uh, you know, we, we're kind of segueing here towards, you know, th- uh, maybe things that are wrong with the game or maybe why we don't watch every inning of every baseball game anymore. Uh, you know, I guess before we get to that, it is All-Star Week, so let's talk about the All-Star game and maybe talk about, you know, I don't know as, as a kid, Alex, if you really, you know, were eagerly looking forward to watching the All-Star games compared to, like, maybe how you view them now. I, I think, to me, the one of the bigger disappointments about this year's All-Star game is, is not even the game itself, but the, uh, the home run derby. You know, here I am. I'm looking at the uh, the eight participants in the home run derby now. As someone who uh, plays in a couple fantasy baseball leagues that are American League only, and being a Red Sox fan, most of my focus is watching the American League. There's only one American League hitter out of eight out of eight of the participants in this home run derby. First of all, I thought uh, it was supposed to be uh, even number, you know, in, in the past, did they change the rules here or something? Because it used to be each uh, league had an even number of uh, participants. Yeah, they moved away from that, I guess. Maybe I, I actually don't know why. Maybe it was just because that was who they could get to sign up. But it's definitely a bummer after last year with Judge and Stanton both being in the game and a bunch of other great uh, power hitters. It really felt like, uh, and by the game, I meant the home run derby. Uh, I really felt like uh, must watch. Uh, this is going to be special, and it was pretty special. I mean, Judge was unbelievable, and this right. year you got Bryce Harper. Javi Baez is really fun, but as you go down the list, you know you, we're not talking about household names here with Max Muncie and Reese Hoskins and you know even Kyle Schwarber. Uh, and our and our lone American League participant, Alex Bregman of the Houston Astros. <laughs> Love that, Alex Bregman. He's an he's a really great player and young and is going to get better. He's going to make a lot of All Star games, but he's definitely not the type of guy who you tune in to see can he hit the ball 500 feet. So this year's All uh, Home Run Derby is definitely a bit of a letdown from last year, but. Yeah, what's up with that, too? Just getting to that for a moment. You mentioned Judge and Stanton, and, uh, you know, even, like, well, like, how come they're not back? How come J.D. Martinez isn't participating in this? I, and I, on the one hand, you say, why aren't they back? But then, of course, you also think back to previous participants, and it, it didn't really happen that much with Judge last year, I don't think, but a lot of hitters will tell you they get a little messed up with their timing when they participate in this home run derby. You don't like to hear him say that. It might be true, but you don't like to hear him say that because you want to see him participate in this. I mean, that's what the whole All-Star Week and, and all these events are about. You want to see the best out there doing what they do best. But now they tell you, well, if I do too much of it, it's going to mess me up for when the games really matter. And so I, I don't I don't know what the solution is, in, you know, as far as that goes. Yeah, yeah. As a general rule, I, I definitely don't fault the players who don't want to participate. You're right that it, it sucks for fans that those guys you mentioned aren't aren't in it. Uh, even Bryce Harper said today that as a, from a fan's perspective, he wishes that Aaron Judge were in the home run derby because it's more fun when he is. But it is what it is. And I, I happen to think, I, you asked um, about how much I like the All-Star game as a fan, as a kid, and now as an adult. I am a huge All-Star game fan. And a lot of people who really follow the game as closely as I do say, you know, well, you can watch these players whenever you want, and there's interleague, and, and I think it's such nonsense. Well, how often are you going to be able to tar- tune in and see a lineup that has Mookie Betts, Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, Manny Machado, uh, you know, Jose Ramirez, uh, Jose Altuve, all these guys in, in one lineup facing off against Max Scherzer? You can't, you can't do that any day. I think the All-Star game is so cool. I geek out every year just seeing the names next to each other. Uh, makes me excited. So I'm a big All-Star Game fan, and I'm kind of a believer that for these three days we can go easy on baseball and have fun and not worry quite so much about the very real issues that the sport faces uh, and all of that. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to talk about that. But for for the All-Star Game, I just try to return to the 
innocence of childhood, if you will. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you. I, I understand all that. And, you know, tell you the truth, if you're Max Scherzer, you might be looking at that American League lineup, and maybe you're grateful that uh, you don't see Rick Porcello batting at the bottom of the order, because that was uh, <laughs> the uh, the highlight of uh, uh, the three games I saw down in D.C. watching uh, Rick Porcello hit a bases-loaded double, and just uh, the fact that Scherzer, like, just grooved him an 0-2 pitch, and then the left fielder was playing shallow, and the bases were loaded. It's like you, they walked Jackie Bradley Jr to pitch to Porcello, which obviously is the thing you're supposed to do. That's the conventional National League way of doing things with two outs. You know, yeah, put the put a guy on base and, and throw to the pitcher. And Porcello hasn't really had many at-bats in his career. But, you know, Scherzer decides to groove him an 0-2 fastball, and, and, and Porcello just turned on it, and I'm, I'm watching this. And you wouldn't believe the number of Red Sox fans who were at these games that just, I mean, I almost felt like I was at Fenway. Everyone was starting to cheer when that ball went over, the, sailed over the left fielder's head, and, you know, the Sox get three runs, and, you know, kind of it got them going. That was like the first game of the three-game series, and it kind of set the tone for the rest of the uh, the series and also kind of set the tone for the last couple of weeks as far as the Nationals go, who've uh, been struggling now and find themselves uh, all the way in third place in the uh, National League East. So it's, uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a funny game. But, yeah, no, as far as the All-Star game goes, you know, yeah, it's just you're right. I mean, there aren't that many opportunities you can see lineups like this, and, and I'm glad, Alex. You're you're one of those. Uh, you're one of the few folks, probably, or at least in the minority of folks in your age demo that uh, still uh, kind of get a, a kick out of that. Yeah, yeah, I do. Although I, if I do have to nitpick, if you look at the lineups next to each other uh, for tomorrow night's game, the AL lineup is stacked like I'm not sure I've ever seen before, and the NL lineup is just kind of weak. I'm not sure I can remember a time when the you know, the AL in the last 25 years or whatever has, has won the vast majority of the All-Star games, but I don't know if I've seen a mismatch quite like this. The NL lineup is obviously good, and they're all All-Stars, and they're all great players, but it doesn't have anywhere near the star power that yeah. the AL lineup does. No, it doesn't. And, of course, uh, just interesting, though, uh, that you have uh, Max Scherzer starting for the National League and Chris Sale for the American League. Uh, no, this is not a. We're, we're not talking about last year's game because those were the same two starters for their respective leagues. Uh, which uh, you know, and then of course for Sale, it's actually the third straight year he's uh, starting an All Star game, uh, which uh, puts him in the company of uh, Robin Roberts and Lefty Gomez. And I guess the last time uh, you had two starters oppose each other in back to back All Star games, you have to go back to 1939, 1940. Red Ruffing and Paul Derringer. That's actually way before both of our times. Well before, even well before. For my time, so uh, hey, wow, you yeah, uh, brought the fact. <laughs> I did know it was uh, Sale's third straight, and it really got me thinking. Sale, it really, really has established a pattern of having incredible first halves and then dropping off a little bit in the second half, and that's another thing that I think the Red Sox can be a little bit worried about. Certainly not panicked, and it's not like he turns into, you know, a terrible pitcher in the second half. But he does seem to uh, consistently perform better in the first half than the second half, which is how he keeps starting all-star games but not winning Cy Young. He always finishes right. third in Cy Young voting or something like that. Well, let's, uh, you know, I, I appreciate uh, you uh, ha- taking some time to join us here, Alex. I, I do want to kind of wrap up. We'll, we'll close with one question. You mentioned, uh, you know, maybe this isn't the right time to talk about, you know, the state of the game and things that can be done. And I, I don't want to go off for like another, you know, like hour talking about that. But I'll just kind of leave you here with one question. If there was one thing that you could do to change uh, one change you could make to Major League Baseball that would make just overall game experience better, uh, something maybe they haven't even thought of yet. What would uh, Do you have any ideas or, or anything that you'd like to see uh, happen to maybe help, uh, I guess, make the games a little, uh, a little quicker? I don't have anything out of the box, but I will say that I'm a proponent of the pitch clock because I think when it comes down to it, that is the thing that can make baseball a little dull at times. Uh, it's not really about how long the game goes on. I don't care when people talk about shortening extra innings. I, I don't think that that is really the point at all. Uh, what matters is that sometimes there are 45 seconds between the pitch, and you see all the fielders with their hands on their knees looking tired, and all the fans are like, come on, man, just just throw the ball already. And yeah. so I think that a pitch clock uh, would keep things going a little bit, would prevent those long pauses and would return the game to where it was before to some extent because the pitchers obviously don't like the pitch clock idea but it is a fact that pitchers work more slowly now than they used to so it's not as though it's impossible to pitch 
you know, in 20 seconds or 22 seconds or whatever they decide on because it's been done before. So I, I would like to see a pitch clock, and I think that it's coming, and I think that that would uh, address the address to some extent the problems. I, I also think that to some extent baseball was invented more than 150 years ago, and you can't necessarily expect today's kids or even today's adults to like the exact same thing that that they liked before. So I don't know that baseball will ever or could ever be the most popular sport in America again. I don't think it's built that way. So I don't think that baseball should go too far in the direction of trying to appeal to people who will never like baseball. But I do think there's a middle ground, and I think that having a pitch clock would move things along a little bit more without you know, betraying the essence of the game or anything like that. Right, and I, I do think, like you said, uh, too, the game is definitely moving in that direction. You're already seeing it through the minor leagues, and uh, eventually all those minor leaguers will, those minor league pitchers will be in the major leagues, so they're going to be used to, to pitching at a quicker pace. Just to give you an example, uh, aside from uh, the the games I attended at Nationals Ballpark, I also visited uh, some friends down in North Carolina while I was on my vacation, and we went to a, a, a high A level. We saw the Winston-Salem Dash play. Uh, we saw a nine-inning ball game and post-game fireworks in under two and a half hours. Wow. That is called a, a perfect night. There you go. You know, that just, uh, I mean, the second pitch of the game was a home run. Uh, the, 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 the pitcher, the, the, the game started with, like, the pitcher throwing, like, eight straight strikes. Of course, some of them were a little too good, but <laughs> at, least, at least the ball was being put in play uh, or, you know being hit somewhere it wasn't it didn't end in a strikeout or a walk so that's yeah. uh a smart smart leagues are always looking for ways to improve on the margins and you don't have to totally upend the game to do that but like you said yeah it's it's attainable it's possible to get uh baseball moving a little bit more yeah no we'll i think like i said we're definitely going to see that uh in the uh, the years to come well alex listen i really appreciate you taking this time and uh, congratulations again on the uh, the job with the hartford current is there uh is your twitter handle still at alex putterman or are you gonna, do you have like a new twitter handle with your current job or at alex putterman okay that's where we can still find you tweeting away and uh and uh, links to all your stories uh coming up and uh you know uh, all the best uh success uh, at the current and with the upcoming i think you're gonna bring the huskies some good luck this football season and uh you know, maybe we'll, like I say, we'll try to touch base uh, maybe right around uh, late regular season or maybe MLB playoff time, which would be right in the heart of the, the Huskies football season, and we can uh, maybe uh, touch upon a little bit of uh, the gridiron too. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thanks, Todd. All right. Well, again, thank you very much uh, to Alex Putterman uh, from the Hartford Current now, and uh, you can uh, follow him on Twitter at Alex Putterman. Of course, uh, don't forget you can follow us here on social media by searching Time Out for Sports Talk on Facebook and on Twitter. Our handle is at TOSTBMC. You'll be able to get links to the latest TOST podcasts as soon as they are available. And uh, also, uh, our Time Out for Sports Talk TV shows are on demand at belmontmedia.org. Uh, for the podcasts, again, uh, make sure you download the SoundCloud app. It is free of charge. Uh, once again, we want to thank Alex Putterman of the Hartford Current for joining us. And until next time, this is Todd Bloniars thanking you for checking out the TOST podcast right here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network. <laughs>